Welcome to another episode of the Dew Point Report. Your host today again is myself, Margarita Carrillo. Today I'm going to be indulging you in just a brief excerpt of the Mueller Report. And you ask yourself, why the Mueller Report? So much talk about the Mueller Report. Can someone please change the subject? Well, truly, how many can honestly say they've read the details of the report? As I was reading pages, oh, 140-something through 150-something, it was interesting to come across, though, excerpts of conversations, well, the, the report itself is a summary, obviously, of over a year and a half of investigative lookings into. And the way it reads is obviously a detail-by-detail detail account. But you can't really read it and then just walk away without thinking to yourself, now who is that person and who is this person? So I did a little research. But before I go into some of the other sections, which is what I was about to read, I wanted to explain what exactly I'm talking about. In the section that discusses Prince, Eric Prince, who happens to be the founder of Blackwater, and his conversations in terms of the meetings that he tried to arrange and some of the information that did get passed along or didn't get passed along. It's interesting, then, as I looked into a little further where he is now, because for a time he was very much in the headlines as being controversial for the very type of work that he was contracting out himself. But in, two, in early 2009, his company was purchased by another, a larger company in China, that had a different concept of what they were going to be like. And so it was interesting to read then a little further as to what his perception of how he would have run his company or was running his company began to change as then somebody else then took over. So... Where I pick up now is on page 191, because, actually 192, Overview of Governing Law. The United States has a compelling interest in limiting the participation of foreign citizens in activities of democratic self-government and in thereby preventing foreign influence over the U.S. Political Process, Blumen v. FEC, 800F Supplemental, 2D-281-288, DDC-211, Kavanaugh, J-4-3, Judge Court. 
Affidavit 565 U.S. 1104-2012. To that end, federal campaign finance law broadly prohibits foreign nationals from making contributions, donations, expenditures, or other distributions in connection with federal, state, or local candidate elections and prohibits anyone from soliciting, accepting, or receiving such contributions or donations. As relevant here, foreign nationals may not make and no one may solicit, accept, or receive from them a contribution or donation of money or other thing of value or an express or implied promise to make a contribution or donation in connection with a federal, state, or local election. 52 U.S.C. 30121A I A A two to the one two eight three. The term contribution, which is used throughout the campaign finance law, includes any gift, subscription, loan, advance, or deposit of money, anything of value made by any person for the purpose of influencing an election for federal office. Fifty two USC. 301018AI it inclu- it excludes among other things the value of volunteer services 52USC 301018BI foreign nationals are also barred from making an expenditure independent expenditure or disbursement from an electioneering communication, 52 U.S.C. 30121A1C. The term expenditure includes any purchase, payment, distribution, loan, advance, deposit, or gift of money, or anything of value made by any person for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. 52 U.S.C. 301019AI It excludes, among other things, news stories and nonpartisan get-up-the-vote activities. 52 U.S.C. 30101 9BI-II Actually, that was Roman numeral 1 through Roman numeral 2. An independent expenditure is an expenditure expressly advocating the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate and made independently of, of the campaign. 52 U.S.C. 301017 An electioneering communication is a broadcast communication that refers to a clearly identified candidate for federal office and is made within specified team, excuse me, specified time periods and targeted at the relevant electorate, 52 U.S.C. 3014 F3. 
The statute defines foreign national by reference to FARA and the Immigration and Nationality Act with modification, with minor modification, 52 U.S.C. 30121B, cross-referencing 22 U.S.C. 611B1-3 and 8 U.S.C. 1101A2022. That definition yields five sometimes overlapping categories of foreign nationals, which includes all of the individuals and entities relevant for present purposes, namely foreign government and political parties, individuals. Outside of the U.S., who are not legal permanent residents, and certain non-U.S. entities located outside of the United States. A knowing and willful violation involving an aggregate of $25,000 or more in a calendar year is a felony. 52 U.S.C. 30109-D1A sub 1 C. Blumen 800 F. Supplemental 2D at 292, noting that a willful violation will require some proof of the defendant's knowledge of the law. United States v. Daniel Schiff 917 F. Supplemental 2D 573 577-E.D. B.A. 2013, applying willfulness standard drawn from Brian v. United States, 524 U.S. 184-191-192-1998. See also Wagner v. FEC, 793 F.3D-119-23. D.C. Circuit, 2015. Ian Bank, same. A knowing and willful violation involving an aggregate of $2,000 or more in a calendar year but less than $25,000 is a misdemeanor. 52 U.S.C. 30109-D19A sub 2. Application to June 9th Trump Tower meeting. The office considered whether to charge Trump campaign officials with crimes in connection with the June 9th meeting described in Volume 1, Section 4A.1 Supra. The office concluded that in light of the government's substantial burden of proof on issues of intent, knowing and willful, and the difficulty of establishing the value of the offered information, criminal charges would not meet the justice manual standard that the admissible evidence will probably be sufficient to maintain and sustain a conviction. Justice manual 9-27.220 In brief, the key facts are that on June 3, 2016, Robert Goldstone emailed 
Donald Trump Jr. to pass along from Emin and Aras Agalarov an offer from Russia's Crown Prosecutor to the Trump campaign of official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to Trump Jr.'s father. The email described this as very high-level and sensitive information that is part of Russia and its government support to Mr. Trump. Help along by Aras and Amin. Trump Jr.'s response, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Trump Jr. and Emin Aguilarov had follow-up conversations and within days scheduled a meeting with Russian representatives that was attended by Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner. The communications setting up the meeting and the attendance by high-level campaign representatives support an interference that the campaign anticipated receiving derogatory documents and information from Russian official sources that could assist candidate Trump's electoral prospects. This series of events could implicate the federal election law ban on contributions and donations by foreign nationals 52 U.S.C. 30121A 1A Specifically, Goldstone passed along an offer purportedly from a Russian government official to provide official documents and information to the Trump campaign for the purpose of influencing the presidential election. Trump Jr. appears to have accepted that and to have arranged a meeting to receive those materials, documentary evidence, in the form of email chains, supports the interference that Kushner and Manafort were aware of that purpose and attended the June 9th meeting, anticipating the receipt of helpful information to the campaign from Russian sources. The office considered whether this evidence would establish a conspiracy to violate the foreign contributions ban in violation of 18 U.S.C. 371, the solicitations of illegal foreign foreign source contributions, or the acceptance or receipt of an express or implied promise to make foreign source contributions both in violation of 52 U.S.C. 30121, A1A, A2. There are reasonable arguments that the offered information would constitute a thing of value within the meaning of provisions. But the office determined that the government would not likely be, would not be likely to obtain and sustain a conviction. For two other reasons. First, the office did not obtain admissible evidence likely to meet the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt 
that these individuals acted wrongfully. With general knowledge of the illegality of their conduct. And second, the government would likely encounter a difficulty in proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the value of the promised information exceeded the threshold for a criminal violation. C. 52 U.S.C. 30109 D1A sub 1. And I pause there for a moment and we may think about what that really is. We hear that spoken in conversation that while there is evidence, it isn't truly enough evidence that perhaps could fully convict. And so, although the first set of paragraphs were quite legalese, what they really broke down in detail were that foreign nationals are not able to contribute to campaigns. The question, really, that one must ask ourselves How is that possible to manage in today's economy when we have people transacting on a global level with things like Bitcoin, with things like international exchanges, with apps on phones that exchange money. What is it that allows people to exchange money in order to purchase merchandise, but they cannot participate in campaigns? Now, if they are able to exchange money in order to purchase merchandise on the very programs or applications that are out there also where candidates are campaigning, then how do these companies have the way to determine that they are also going to separate out the difference of which money belongs to whom? That is truly the question of the upcoming election. And if that can be tackled in terms of truly recognizing where the funding comes from on all levels, because people make purchases all the time, but how is it that now all of a sudden they have to prove exactly who they are and where they come from? Is it that this particular law just hasn't caught up? Does the law have to change? Or do we have to change to better understand what other countries do for their elections? We really have to ask ourselves. Because this isn't new. Elections are not new to the world. But for some reason, 
if there were 11,000 jurisdictions that were compromised in the 2016 election, something has gone awry. And folks, we do not live in Denmark. So my gross interpretation of a quote may sound awful, but the situation is awful if we cannot get this right the next time around. So we must become more adept to understanding the importance of elections at a global level and how is it that we can adapt more quickly to sports than we can to elections? How is it that we can build GoFundMe campaigns or microloan programs to help people grow their businesses, yet we can't wrap our minds around how to strengthen our electoral system. And why is it that we get stuck and wrapped around the axle when we should be moving forward because we have elections just around the corner. So now I wanted to just fast forward a little bit more so that a little more glimpse as to the depth of the report. as to why there were more people affected by this. So we hear some names once in a while. But what do they mean? And why were there so many convictions around this particular subject? Well, let's talk about Papadopoulos. His false statements, actually, were pretty cantankerous. This is why. And I read. Papadopoulos' false statements in July 2017 impeded the FBI's investigation into Russian interference. In the 2016 presidential election, most immediately, those statements hindered investigators' ability to effectively question Mifsud when he was interviewed in the lobby of a Washington, D.C. hotel on February 10, 2017. You can see government sent memorandum at 6 United States versus George Papadopoulos, number 1, Colon 17 CR 182 DDC August 18, 2017 Doc 44. 
During that interview, Mifsud admitted to knowing Papadopoulos and to having introduced him to Polonishka, yeah, and emails damaging and Timo, Timofeev. But Mifsud denied that he had advanced knowledge that Russia was in possession of emails damaged, damaging to candidate Clinton, stating that he and Papadopoulos had discussed cybersecurity and hacking as a larger issue and that Papadopoulos must have misunderstood their conversation. Mifsud also falsely stated that he had not seen Papadopoulos since the meeting at which Mifsud introduced him to Polonskaya. Even though emails, text messages, and other information showed that Mifsud met with Papadopoulos on at least two other occasions. April 12th and April 26th, 2016. In addition, Mifsud omitted that he had drafted or edited the following message to Polonskaya sent to Papadopoulos following the initial meeting and that, as reflected in the language of that email chain, baby, thank you. Mifsud may have, involved, may have been involved in a personal relationship with Polonskaya at the time. The false information and omissions in Papadopoulos's to January 2017 interview undermined investigators' ability to challenge Mifsud when he made these inaccurate statements, given the seriousness of the lies and omissions and their effect on the FBI's investigation. The office charged Papadopoulos with making false statements to the FBI in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001, Information, United States v. George Papadopoulos. Number 117-CR182, DDC, October 3, 2017, Doc 8. On October 17th, Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to that charge, pursuant to a plea agreement. On September 17, 2018, he was sentenced to 14 days of imprisonment, a $9,500 fine, and 200 hours of community service. Michael Flynn agreed to be interviewed by the FBI. On January 24th, four days after he had officially assumed his duties as National Security Advisor to the President, during the interview, Flynn had several false statements pertaining to, this communica to his communications with the Russian ambassador. First, Flynn made false statements about his conversations with Russian Ambassador Kislyak. In late December 2016, at a time when the United States had imposed sanctions on Russia for interfering with the 2016 presidential election, and Russia was considering its response, see Flynn's statement of offense, Flynn told the agents that he did not ask Kislyak to refrain from escalating the situation in response to the United States' imposition of sanctions. That statement was false. On December 29, 2016, Flynn called Kislyak to request Russian restraint. And it goes on with further detail. Now, in regards to Michael Cohen, 
Michael Cohen was the executive vice president and special counsel to the president, the Trump Organization, when Trump was president of the Trump Organization. Information. United States versus Cohen. Number 1, colon, 18, CR, 850, SDNY, November 29th, 2018, Doc 2, Cohen Information. From the fall of 2015 through approximately 2016, Cohen was involved in a project to build a Trump-branded tower and adjoining development in Moscow. The project was known as Trump Tower Moscow. In 2017, Cohen was called to testify before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, both of which were investigating Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and possible links between Russia and the presidential campaign. In late 2017, in advance of his testimony, Cohen caused a two-page statement to be sent to SSCI and HPSCI addressing Trump Tower Moscow. Cohen Information 2 through 3. The letter contained three representations relevant here. First, Cohen stated that the Trump-Moscow project had ended in 2016, that he had briefed candidate Trump on the project. Only three times before making the unilateral decision to terminate it. Second, Cohen represented that he never agreed to travel to Russia in connection with the project, and never considered asking Trump to travel for the project. Third, Cohen stated that he did not recall any Russian government contact about the project, including any response to an email that he had sent to a Russian government email account. You may be wondering, well, why all this detail? Each of the foregoing representations, and there were more, in, in this two-page statement was false and misleading. Now, one might argue that he did that on purpose to, mis, to, to, be, to misrepresent the situation, because after all, he was Trump's lawyer. He may have been protecting him. The fact that he lied put him in a position of falsehood. And so then I skip forward to some of the other paragraphs. Given the nature of the false statements and the fact that he repeated them during his initial interview with the office, we charge Cohen with violating section 1001. So, I think that gives a little bit more depth as to just some of the people that received convictions. There, of course, have been many others. And then one must 
ask themselves, even though the conclusions stated that there was no decision to prosecute, there was plenty of evidence that led to make itself presentable that now the decision can be made to all to whom it was presented, and they themselves now can make the decision. Without a doubt, it is a big burden, but now it lies in the hands of the elected officials, who they themselves opened up the special prosecutor's responsibilities and scope. So only time will tell what the next chapter will bring. But Special Counsel Robert Mueller has done his duty, and it certainly was a busy week, was it not?